Welcome to the Future of Science podcast. This episode is about as meta as it gets. Fair data, metadata, frustration about metadata, and metadata about metadata. We'll cover how fair data, meaning findable, accessible, interoperable, and reusable data, enables machine actionability, which sci-fi future is possible if all the internet was composed of fair digital objects, and why we need data stewards to get there. We'll see how the principles got their cute little acronym name and how that likely helped the incredibly quick adoption, even in high-level bureaucratic institutions like the G20 and World Economic Forum. You'll learn about the incredible amount of money going to waste in the public and private sector due to not having implemented fair data principles yet. Oh, and we'll also talk about how the banking industry once tried to buy the internet. Yep, heard that one right. So let's jump right in. So maybe we start with that. Maybe uh, maybe you could just tell us quickly what is fair data and why is it important? Sure. So in my mind, the fair principles are really principles of machine actionability. Um, and it sort of gives you the um, um, a spectrum of behaviors that would be needed for automated findability, accessibility, etc. Um, they're also called the, the fair guiding principles. And I think now, what, uh, six years later or something, they've really proven themselves to be an excellent guide. Um, they really help you to figure out um, where you sort of stand in machine actionability and, yeah. and the, the gaps that need to be filled to, to take you further. So they actually do a great job being being this guide. Um, I think the you know why why do we have them? What, what's the purpose of this? Uh, as anticipated some time ago, uh, way back in the in the early days of the internet, there's so much data coming, and it's so complex now yeah. that it really escapes human comprehension. It's just beyond the ability of a human to manage it all. Um, in the that's consequences so yeah. is that a lot of really important data that's created um, can simply go lost in plain yep. sight. Yep. Um, and even if you if you have access to some of this data, um, to make it interoperate in a way with other data to to derive some important result, um, it just doesn't scale anymore. Yeah, you yeah, yeah. can't exactly. go in and munge that data. It, it is so true. I, I think like in, in my research group, we're, we're typically uh, spending probably 20 or 30% of the total research time just trying to find yeah. data and to clean it yeah. and to make it uh, sort of actionable and analyzable in, in one way or another. And then there's always this big problem about how do you store that data in the long term? How do you make it accessible and findable for others? Uh, and for for our projects, we usually have some you know self made solutions that sort of work. Um, but I can clearly see that all over the research landscape, this is something that uh, that people either are not really thinking about very clearly, uh, or they're putting not a lot of effort into it. Um, and it seems like that we just have a really long way to go to get there. When you know, a question for you when um, you. Uh, when you do clean your data and make it more interoperable, um, what happens to that cleaned cleaned up data? Is that something that can be republished? 
Yeah, yeah, totally. made available so, again. Yeah, um, yeah. So we we usually just post our summary statistics from these large gene genome-wide association studies on our website, uh, and that's. I mean, it's not a perfect solution. It would probably be better to have that data in some, you know, browsable catalog where, where everybody can immediately find it. Uh, but in our case, you know, the, the consortium is really well known and anybody who reads the paper, they uh, see the link to the website where the data is being posted. So it's relatively easy to find. Yes. So, yeah. Yeah. So but there's also this idea then, you know, that in a way that some verification can happen, um, uh, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be giant projects in data verification. It can also be sort of verify what you need as you go. Um, but if, if there was a, a, a kind of a method or a pathway to then republish that cleaned up data in some standardized way, um, then that's just kind of a nice way to, to create fair resources as part of your daily routine. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So let's unpack this a little bit. So FAIR is obviously is an abbreviation. So what does it stand for? Sure. So FAIR is um, a very clever acronym. Uh, it is clever. I agree. <laughs> it's very <laughs> sticky. Well, maybe that's worth a discussion. So FAIR originated at this workshop at the Lorenz Center in January 2014. And... So it was a workshop that was focused exactly on this, you know, too much data, too complex data. What do we do? And what was envisioned then um, was a kind of uh, an infrastructure supporting data. And they were using the metaphor of an airport for this. So the name of this Lorenz workshop was jointly designing a data fairport. Mm -hmm. And the idea was, you know, when a passenger goes... Uh, to Schiphol Airport, there's a whole host of services and vendors that are there to support the journey mm -hmm. and to make your journey from point A to point B a little more comfortable. And there's um, also all the security that just uh, slows you down and makes you wait in long, long hours, uh, long, long queues for hours. <laughs> it causes well, a lot of frustration. <laughs> let's call the security also a service rather than an annoyance. Yeah, but I know. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that they're thinking of themselves as a service. Yes. <laughs> indeed. Indeed. But, but the idea was, oh, could we, do, <clears throat> could we do something similar for data? You know, that, you know, could we work out a, a system whereby vendors could come in and offer, you know, like, like in a food court, you know, or restaurants or shops that there would be a, a place where, where customers could access services that would make their data experience easier, their data journeys easier. And um, so at that point, Fairport was just a play on words for airport. Kind of ah, like, ah, this is yeah, clever. Okay, the, so the acronym mm -hmm. had not yet existed, and then it was um, after the the workshop. Um, the people who had attended the workshop were thinking about, okay, we need a set of principles to to get data more machine actionable. So mm -hmm, they mm -hmm. started creating these these principles, and now now we know them as these fifteen one liners um, in the fair principles. But um, the story that I've heard is that at one point, um, Barand Mons, the, mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. initiator of the workshop, uh, had taken these 15 principles and simply rearranged them. <laughs> 
And in the order of findable, accessible, interoperable, and reusable. Yes, so that's brilliant. The, the acronym was born. The yes. 15 one-liners found an appropriate place in F-A-I-N-R. And then this magical acronym was created. And the, I think the power of the acronym is that it sounds very egalitarian. Yeah, yeah. Who doesn't want to be fair? Exactly. Yet at the same time, um, the fair principles really have nothing to do with <laughs> with, with any kind of um, uh, moralistic uh, approach. It's right. really some technical principles that, that need to be in place before the machine can actually do F-A-I-N-R on its own. Right. So let's dig into this a little bit deeper. So why is that important? Why is machine actionability important in the context of scientific data? And again, I think it's really this idea of, um, uh, you know, you can call it efficiency, mm -hmm. um, but it's, it's, you know, there's always thresholds in efficiency. So if things become um, um, to a low, you know, if, if things lower in efficiency to some threshold, oftentimes then the activities just become impossible altogether. So it's not just slow, but it becomes impossible. Yeah. And, and I think we're, we're facing these diminishing returns with the volume and complexity of data. So it, it's, it's viewed to be absolutely essential, um, I guess, from a theoretical point of view, but, but really from a very practical point of view, just people need to save money they they need to process information if they want to advance their own work and that's just not going to happen if the machine cannot assist the human right in the fa inr functions yeah yeah and uh, so this is this is obviously something where researchers are typically not trained to think about these sorts of things it requires effort on their behalf right yeah um, and it, it also means that there has to be some upfront cost, uh, that typically the researcher has to bear in terms of like additional labor, additional efforts that they have to do in order to have these efficiency gains in the long run. But it seems like it's, it's a classical dilemma where like in each individual case, you sort of like have a public goods problem where the person who is supposed to provide the public good um, bears the cost and therefore actually has very little incentive of actually doing that. Yeah. So that's, um, I think oftentimes the view. Um, so it's a question of, you know, how do we motivate say researchers or data producers to, um, you know, to put the effort in that's required to make data fair. And there's a, a bunch of answers here, some on the short term, some on the long term. If the short term, it's, um, you know, you can appeal to sort of, again, the kind of the, the moralistic or egalitarian view that, okay, if, if you go through this effort, your data will be probably of a higher quality. They will probably be reused more often, you know, when it's appropriate. And you might even increase the reproducibility Right. Science. Right. And these are all great ideas. We, we, we all love to think about better science, but we are all aware of, of you know, the demands on our time, the, the time of researchers. And OK, so it's a great view of the future, but um, not necessarily something that we can all easily implement day to day. Um, 
So then there's another set of um, possibilities. More and more funding agencies are requiring fair research output. Right. Exactly. And so there's, you know, there's the carrot and there's the stick. And the funders <laughs> are, are bringing more and more a big stick um, with regards to fair. So that will get the attention of researchers, you know, or at least like academic researchers who get publicly funded research grants, for example. They are starting to feel the heat. But, but then the funders should realize as well that they need to mandate or they, you know, they need to put budget behind that mandate. Yeah. And I think that's, that's also, there's some encouraging developments there as well. I think there's a a number of cases that I can point to where funding agencies are realizing the, and becoming or understanding better the role they play in the verification of data. Yeah. And there is a very serious, commitment that that funders and by the way publishers uh there's you know really serious commitments that that they will need to make to be a to actuate an infrastructure for this yeah and and what what governments or what institutions are you thinking about which are currently like pushing for the fair principles yeah so there's the the surprising thing is is that Fair was taken up immediately after after the Fair Principles were published in 2016. So mm-hmm. you saw, you know, uh, online on web pages and in white papers, you saw commitments to Fair everywhere. Um, there's been a period of, of kind of languishing or, or uh, trying to come to terms with what this really means, what this yeah. commitment really is about. But the very concrete things we can point to are, for example, at the Dutch Zonem Bay. Uh, organization, um, which in the COVID pandemic put in quite some resources of in their national COVID program. Uh, so first there was a commitment that research products, research uh, assets should be made fair. So that was a big statement. Mm-hmm. And then there was um, um, some assistance that was provided through the GoFair Foundation and also HealthRI. In, in actually supporting about 130 research projects in that program to make their data fair. And so there was um, a series of metadata for machine workshops. Um, there was a deployment of a, of a portal environment that, that could display the metadata that was created. So Zonem Vey really you know, put the money where their mouth was and they, they actually funded the verification. And we really engaged the um, the researchers and the data stewards in these 130 projects. It was a pretty huge effort. But to say now, um, there's a number of programs coming up where this will be this process will be um, refined and and extended. So in dementia research and cystic fibrosis. Um, at the same time, we we have now um, also um, pretty in depth discussions with the National Institutes of Health in the United States. Interesting. And I think we're yeah. getting close to deploying a series of metadata for machine workshops and fair implementation profile workshops for some projects and institutes in the NIH. Um, but let me just say that the NIH is a particularly interesting target organization for fair uh, because the, the NIH is a very large organization yeah. composed of, I think, 23 
research institutes. Exactly. They're all on one campus. They're all kind of yep. located as one big project. Yep. Um, um, and yet the data interoperability is like anywhere else. It's, it's non-existent. <laughs> so yes. you know, what would it take, right, for an NIH level verification? Wow. And, and could we imagine, you know, that, um, for example, uh, the way you identify um, let's say cells or genes or proteins in one institute, uh, you know, those identifiers and those vocabularies could probably just as well be used by the other 22 mm-hmm. institutes. And are they? Oh, at this point, not at all. <laughs> wow. Yeah. But, but the idea is, yeah. you know, the, the vision here is that, that you could imagine quite some effective verification because these, these groups are already kind of organized together like that. Right. And uh, so I saw that the the European Commission has also made a very early on commitment to the FAIR principles yes. and has been promoting them quite heavily, right? Yeah. Even up to the point where they uh, they sort of say, well, there are certain demands towards researchers to implement them, although it is really not that entirely clear how exactly this is supposed to happen. Yeah. But there seems to be a big push uh, commitment, really, that, uh, that I've seen and that I've felt here, at least in Europe. Europe. And uh, a, a part of it seems to be uh, really that there is this idea that by not having data fair, that we're actually squandering and wasting a lot of resources and a lot of potential, right? So there was this uh, this report out there, um, which I think was also sponsored by the European Commission, where they sort of like did a cost-benefit analysis of uh, of having fair data versus not having fair data. And they, uh, and they estimated that only for the for the European Union that there is a waste of like north of 10 billion euros a year mm. for not having data fair right mm. and this incorporates things like time that is lost by researchers trying to to find the data that they need for their research it also means that a lot of time is being wasted uh, trying to prepare the data that they ultimately found and uh, and make it useful uh, it also means that there is a duplication of storage costs for uh, for data sets that are just, you know, that are not synchronized and that are stored in different places and then the duplication of costs occurs, license fees, um, all of these things. And it doesn't even take into account the, uh, the effects from slowing down research or from having less replicable research or less innovation uh, as, a, as a result of that, right? So all of these sort of uh, more intangible indirect effects are not even taken into account. So it really seems to be a big, big issue uh, where at least there is there there is a theoretical cost of having that, right? But there isn't really anybody who is like directly paying for these costs. So it, it again seems like a, a public goods problem in a way, right? So there there is an obvious cost to not having these public goods, but who who will actually provide them? So what what's the way to get there? Yeah, well, you know, so this is indeed true. In 2016, um, the FAIR principles were, were published in their modern form. And almost immediately, um, the European Open Science Cloud um, high-level expert group published their first report. And FAIR was all over it. So it was recognized, <laughs> yes. you know, early on that, that FAIR should somehow be, be fundamental, even to the European Open Science Cloud. Um, and 
maybe it's it's also important to say that um, in our work from 2016 on, it was really private industry <clears throat> that I think had the most compelling use case or commitment to fair data. And we had worked with some larger pharmaceutical companies who, uh, even very early on, 2017 maybe, um, the discussion would start, you know, like, you know, we don't need to see the justification for fair. We get it. We're there. Um, (laughs) We're losing approximately 2.3 billion a year in our own internal data management. Wow. Their estimate. Really? Oh my God. So, so I think that the 10 billion that, that, um, that you cited from PricewaterhouseCooper, I think that's extremely conservative. So it was in industry alone where, you know, if you could help us to verify our data internally, that would already bring us a huge savings in the company. Um, so the, I think the answer that maybe you're prompting here, Philip, is um, I think properly seen, and, and I'm going to quote my, my colleague Rob Hoft in this, properly seen, fair is not a cost, it's an investment. And if you can win back some of that inefficiency that now is endemic, um, then it should be the case that whatever you've invested in your verification should pay back dividends going forward. Right. Right. Um, do you, so do you, you think that there is actually a willingness of uh, of you know funding agencies and uh, and and governments uh, to put their money where their mouth is to actually do these investments? Because like you know we're we're talking about a public good, so the the public good is very unlikely to be completely paid for by private industry or by the users. Yeah, and I think um, if I rephrase your question, you know, there's in fair there are. There are things you need to do as a data producer. There's a commitment you need to make kind of, you know, as part of your daily routine. But FAIR is not really going to happen unless there's an infrastructure put into place that can support it. So so the research, you know, we're not going to ask the researcher to develop new, um, um, you know, identifier resolution services. Yeah. And access protocols and uh, you know authorization protocols. Um, we need we need researchers to develop me- good metadata descriptions about what they're doing, and that needs to be made machine actionable. That's enough. That that verified data, that fair ready machine actionable representation, then needs to be orchestrated somehow. And that's an infrastructure problem. Yeah, yeah. And and so, um, you know, we've built infrastructures, um, I guess, as public goods, right? We, we've built electricity grids and yeah. highway networks. So we've done those things before. And I think yeah. properly seeing that, you know, we need a, a kind of a data infrastructure. And I think the FAIR principles are helping kind of guiding that innovation process to the point where, you know, I think at some point there will be mature enough approaches that um, there will be then large investments in an implementation and under the the appropriate governance, you know, probably open and uh, freely available, et cetera, um, 
just as the internet came into being. Exactly. So the internet is actually, it's a wonderful example, right? So it's, it's this gigantic data infrastructure that we literally build over 50 years. Uh, and it, it is one of these in, incredibly useful infrastructures for humanity that, uh, that evolved out of a cooperation between science, the public sector, so governments that were sponsoring it, and ultimately also companies. So there was a lot of like, you know, public-private partnerships uh, or, or synergies that ultimately led to, uh, to the success of the internet. So I, I hope that, you know, something like that could also be a role model for, you know, our next step into, uh, uh, into the world of, of really, really big data. Absolutely. And, you know, I've had the pleasure on occasion to, to talk to some of the, the pioneers of the internet. I get the impression that the internet we have now, that there was absolutely nothing inevitable about it. Exactly. Exactly. There's no reason why we should have an internet right now. There, it wasn't written in, in destiny. And the internet we have now could be, in fact, much better than it is. There were ways to make the internet much more powerful and, and, and trustworthy. There were also ways that the internet could have been stalled in, in a much more rudimentary state. So, so Bob Kahn, the, the guy who, co-inventor of TCP IP, he said to me once that uh, there was a moment when, when the banking industry wanted to buy TCP IP or somehow mm. own TCP IP. Oh, wow. And he said that if, if that had happened, um, that the internet today would be ATM machines. <laughs> that would have been the extent of the vision. Um, so it's really, yeah. It, it, so, you know, taking that lesson to now, yeah, we're, we're, we think there's an emerging data network that's, that's, you know, trying to be born. Um, and there is, it's a moment now where, where, you know, small fluctuations can really matter a lot. So, yeah. Um, you know, we could end up with a fantastic data infrastructure or we could end up with a mediocre one yeah. or yeah. we could end up with none at all. There's, yeah, there's nothing exactly. inevitable about it. Exactly. It's, uh, this is usually one of these things that, uh, that happens with, with network goods, right? Or with, with infrastructures that have network effects. There are these path dependencies where like historical events uh, can really have very, very large uh, downstream consequences that, that push the future of history into one direction or the other, depending on, you know, really tiny things that happen relatively early on and that just tilt the balance a little bit in one or the other direction, right? So it's, I, I, I guess this is sort of like, it's, uh, it's the moment now for, for this fair, um, for fair data framework and uh, an idea where where we are, right? So we're still relatively early on. We're, we're early on, and and therefore it's a very exciting moment, I think. Absolutely. Hey there, thanks for tuning into the Future of Science podcast. If you're liking this episode so far, please consider leaving a review and subscribing to our channel. It helps us reach others who might also enjoy this podcast. Thanks. I'll let you get back to it. You know, so one of one of the things that that really blew my mind is how much support you guys have been getting from public institutions, right? So, typically, uh, maybe this is just my my uh, my prejudice or you know uh, limited sample, but very often my impression is that uh, the public sector is very very slow to recognize 
new opportunities or actually big challenges and to do something about it. But in this particular case, with you know the, the fair principles and, and going fair, it seems like that there was tremendous support from a lot of different institutions um, in Europe, but but also far beyond that. And I'm just wondering, so why why do you think it was that there was so much support for this? Uh, were people just ready for it? Were they just literally waiting for somebody to speak up and to say it? Or was it Barnes with this uh, with this amazing marketing and, and uh, you know uh, communications? That uh, what was it? How 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 did you get all that support? Well, I, I think we cannot, again, underestimate the value of the acronym. Yeah. Uh, just uh, had the acronym worked out to be, you know, something like, uh, you know, uh, a scam or something, then no one would, would follow the scam principles, right? But, <laughs> but um, if it's fair... Are you sure? Not, I'm not like, sure. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that there is a large community of passionate scammers out there. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure there would be a following, but not as big as the one we have. Right. Um and, and then also maybe, you know, in this question, um, there is this distinction, this bifurcation between researchers and data producers right. who um, feel just an extra burden coming to them mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, versus, let's say, the really high level organizations that you are absolutely correct. They bought in immediately to this. And and it is a, a bit of a contradiction because it's also true that these large authoritative bodies out there, they tend to move very, very slowly. In fact, they, they purposefully move very, very slowly because what they do has so much impact. Yeah. So, so yeah, why was this rapid commitment? Um, and maybe it's also, you know, just to really to kind of lay it out. Um, the same year the principles were published, the G20 had FAIR written in their communique from... Oh, really? I I, I didn't know that. The next year after that, um, the G7 had the same from Italy when they met. Um, It's been mentioned at the World Economic Forum um, in different ways. Um, You see it at, at, you know, funding organizations. You see it at EOSC, European Commission. So, yeah, there was an immediate attraction to to very high-level organizations. Mm -hmm. And I, I think the answer here, Philip, is that large bureaucracies are generally driven um, or let's say directed by their risk assessments. Right. So they're, they're always trying to mitigate risk. They're not trying to innovate. They're not trying to push the boundaries at the frontier. They're trying to mitigate risk. Exactly. It's, it's more like uh, stabilizing what, what we have, right? So basically preventing collapse. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> And at the same time, you know, it was these very high level groups that were most aware of the waste and inefficiencies mm-hmm. in data production. So, you know, these high level, I th- you know, in my mind, I, I can imagine that there's a high level bureaucrat who's feeling the heat mm-hmm. that the 10 billion that they invested in some program produce a lot of data that nobody can find anymore. Right, exactly. So how do you account for that, right? Exactly. You, you can be responsible for, for taking that, you know, that yeah. risk. So I think FAIR was attract was attractive very early on to these high-level groups because it, it spoke to the mitigation of risk. Mm-hmm. And that's what rings the bell, I think, at those higher levels. Right, exactly. Yeah. So I think All that's the, why we, yeah, we yeah. see it at the high level. Um, but then the people who have to implement it, 
um, you know, at the lower levels and in yeah. the lab or in the, in the, in the research departments, um, you know, they, they, they see it a, a little bit more like a burden or they need help and assistance with it. Exactly. So we'll unravel that a little bit, uh, more later, but I, so it's one thing that, um, that I would love to get your perspective on. So, um, when I was at the, at the Leiden conference that you guys organized, um, just when was it like two or three weeks ago? Yeah. I was I was blown away really by the diversity of uh, of the audience, the, the competence, the many different fields of science that were represented there, but also how many public institutions there were. Uh, but I I couldn't help to see that there was a very strong Europe bias. So this may have been just because yeah. it was organized in in Leiden. But I'm wondering, like, how do you see that? Do you think that that these fair principles uh, are primarily a European pet project, or is there an equal amount of enthusiasm and support for that on the other side of uh, of the Atlantic Ocean? I think fair. Um, well, clearly, it was born in Europe, and um, I think for whatever reason, very strong commitments were made early on in Europe. Um, there was maybe fortuitous timing with, with the announcement of the European Open Science Cloud. So that, and then there was a lot of money to follow on EOSC. So, you know, you could really amplify the signal here in Europe. Um, FAIR is, you know, there's an awareness of FAIR in the US as well, and Canada for sure. Um, Brazil is also, you know, mm-hmm. quite well aware of, of mm-hmm. FAIR. Um, and I think it, it just hasn't received, though, the same, um, I don't know, maybe maybe exacting and implementing um, pressures, you know, that, mm-hmm. that we've had here in Europe. So why do you think that's the case? Is it yeah. because this this originated from Europe and it's uh, it's like mm-hmm. there may be this uh, the syndrome of not my turf or like, what is it? Well, I, I think there is a kind of competitive thing. Um, so I'm an American, so I, I will speak <laughs> from my point of view as an American. Um, but I, you know, I think in the United States, um, there there's, is often the view that, you know, uh, the United States is, is the leader, is the innovator. This is where new things happen. So if there should be a good idea from Europe, it'll take a little bit longer, I think, to hmm. to land in the in the right you know soil in the u.s to to start growing um so fair has been recognized from the beginning in the u.s but it sort of went through some hype cycles um Mm -hmm. i would say and and then there was some discouragement people would say ah it's only hype or we've been doing this for 20 years already there's nothing Mm -hmm. new Mm -hmm. here Mm -hmm. and um so people were looking for and and then tending to find reasons not to take fair seriously or go very deep with it. Right. And, but that I, I'm happy to say is now changing. And I would say even in the last year, um, we see, you know, kind of a renewed and much more serious and committed interest in fair to the point of, you know, let's really get some implementations going here. The way history tends to work, I think um, the U S is often slow to get going. Uh, but when they when they get going, um, you could see some very serious. Uh, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Um, so let's let's unpack this a little bit. What what fair 
actually means for empirical researchers, right? So okay. somebody who who is actually uh, you know collecting data and uh, and publishing with that new data. So what would a researcher, an individual researcher, have to do to comply with the fair principles? Sure, and I think the nice thing about the fair principles, again, kind of as as fair guiding principles, um, is is that you can use them to sort of prioritize your approach. And, um, you know, you can sort of, in any case, you can always assess sort of where you are in your data practices, how well they adhere to fair principles. And then you can spot, I think, pretty easily um, low-hanging fruit. So some simple things you can do to really help boost your fairness um, and then maybe roadmap things that might be like at a project level, you know, things that you would have to right. really make a, an investment in later on. Um, one thing about the FAIR principles um, that I think is is quite useful is that they really elevate this idea of metadata. Mm-hmm. Exactly. To be a first-class citizen with the data itself. Yeah. Um, and this requires a new... Uh frame of thinking for a lot of people right so because as a scientist when i'm when i'm collecting my data in the lab or you know in the field um i'm worried about a bunch of different things but i'm not worried about metadata this is just not on my radar right and and i would say you know the way science grew up over time let's say over the last 200 years um <clears throat> metadata could effectively be uh be kind of, you know, shifted as a responsibility to say the publisher. And, you know, that's the job of science or nature magazine. They will record my text, my tables, my figures, and they will uh, uh, give me a citation um, information that I can, you know, people know how to get to my data and, and cite my work. And I think that was the extent of, of people's thinking about metadata for a mm-hmm. long time. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not my job. It's the job of the publisher. Right. All right. Or, publisher... or I'll think about it for two minutes when I submit my paper for publication. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. And, and so indeed, you know, if, you, if, we, um, if we think that data can live more and more independently, you know, as, as a, a viable asset, even without a research article around it, um, and if it's going to exist in a digital form on a digital network, then yeah, you know, certain things will need to be in place to make that data much more findable and accessible. And, and, you know, if I want to reuse it, I'm going to have to know much more about where it came from and the processes that, that produced it and the parameters that were in place at the time it was produced and dates and times. And so, so these metadata, more and more, and by the way, licensing, um, you know, who's allowed to use it and under what conditions. Uh, these are elements that um, were, were only vaguely or, or non-rigorously kept by this research scientist, and if at all. Um, and, you know, again, it was always like someone else's responsibility to handle the metadata part. Mm-hmm. And in FAIR is is asking us to reevaluate that. Yeah. And it's really saying that, you know, even in some ways for FAIR, the metadata, you could argue, is even more important than the data itself. Different reasons why I would say that, but, you know, 
principle A2 of the FAIR principles is, is saying, for example, that your metadata should persist even if the data are no longer available. Hmm. And so it's really the FAIR principles are asking that your metadata becomes a kind of permanent record or mm -hmm. a publication in and of themselves. And, you know, your data set could be, for various reasons, slated for deletion or non-maintenance right. or right. archival. You know, it could go missing for, for accidental reasons or for right. purposeful reasons. And um, the metadata should be there to say, hey, the data is missing. It, it was there, right? So it's a little bit like uh, having a historical record, right? So even though Pompeii may not exist anymore, it's important for us to know that there was Pompeii and where it was and what it was and how it looked like, right? Indeed. And, in um, you know, when, yeah, so in a, there, there can be a kind of tombstone element yeah. to this that you can yeah. say, you know, these data are now resting in peace. So don't bother to look for them anymore. You know, you're not going to find them. They, they were, yeah, yeah, they're gone. And, so. I mean, this is this is actually this is so interesting that uh, that metadata are really so core to the fair principles, right? So I, I guess this is more generally true that that metadata just play an enormously important part for uh, for the digital economy in general, right? So. Yeah. In, in a way, Google has been solving this, this metadata problem or has been using metadata about websites and then allowed us to find the ones that we actually want, right? But for that, there needed to be metadata so that Google had actually some, something that they, can, that they can crawl and that they, uh, that they can search and that they can organize. If there is no metadata, there is also no Google. So and it's, it's sort of like it's the same here, I guess, in science, right? So if you have a lack of metadata, there is no, there is no way for us to have a Google that actually helps researchers to find the stuff that may ultimately be helpful uh, to them, right? Yeah, indeed. And, you know, what's, um, I think, what, what FAIR has taught me over the years <clears throat> is that uh, the line between metadata and data is actually quite blurry yeah. If, if non-existent, yeah. Um, um, even to the point where you know, I think, oh, if I want to verify, say, an, an Excel table, you know, the scientist probably creates columns of numbers, right, and then puts a column header on top. Yeah, 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 exactly. Those column headers, you know, you most people would say, oh, that's your data set. You know, this is part of your data set. Yeah. But those column headers are telling you something about those numbers. Exactly. And but in that usually way, they're, they're not self-explanatory, right? So I've, I mean, my, my PhD students, they do that all the time, right? So they, uh, they write a first report uh, on an analysis that they did. And then the tables and the figures, they have the original variable names from the data set, and they're completely meaningless. Yeah. Like, so that you do not understand them. And I guess that's part of the problem, right? So, I mean, for going back to this analogy with Google, I mean, Google has the advantage that uh, HTML pages, they can actually scroll the text. They can read the text. The text yeah. is sort of human readable. It's, it's designed to be human readable that you can guess what the context is and what this is all about. But in the case of a scientific data set where you just have millions of numbers and like short acronyms or, or abbreviations for, for variables, and then very often also just missing descriptions of variables. How the hell is a computer or a human or just anybody supposed to make sense of that? <laughs> Indeed. And, and so, you know, when we talk about fair metadata, um, it's not only that, you know, metadata is important, but it's, a, it's metadata that has been rendered machine actionable. 
So it's, you know, these are controlled vocabularies or controlled terminologies embedded in schemas that allow the machine to really understand, you know, the properties of, of, of these metadata and can interpret them um, in a way that would make sense to a human. And so it, it, it really begins to establish, you know, ideally and fair, it would begin to establish this um, coherent relationship between the machine and the human. And we can discharge to the machine the high volume routine tasks, you know, that machines are good at, but we can discharge to the human, you know, the more creative, um, connect the dots, um, theoretical work that, that humans are good at the creative work. Um, but that's predicated then on, yeah, this, this, um, this semantic information embedded, um, more and more in the data and in the metadata that, that, um, describe those data sets. Right. So, I mean, so I'm, I'm still in the process of really learning and understanding the fair principles. And one way how I'm, I'm trying to make sense of all of it is um, that I'm thinking of machines or computers basically as helpers to us and humans, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, so they, uh, we need computers to be able to store data. We need them to analyze data. We also need them to find data. Um, and with the growing availability of, of data and the growing complexity of data, uh, we just need more and more help from computers to actually be able to find the right resources and to make good use of them. But we need to help the computers to help us. And this is basically where the FAIR principles come in. Yeah. Is that a fair understanding? Uh, hmm, pun not intended, but still. <laughs> is that a fair yeah, understanding? Lots of puns around FAIR. Um, <laughs> I really think of the FAIR principles as this interface, or you know, these are guidelines for building an interface between the human brain and you know the, the, the cyber computational world. Um, it's really the bridge between the human world and the machine world. And um, this has a, a, a very serious consequence for implementation in that um, we, we will need, so we can build an infrastructure that's one thing, and infrastructures will always kind of grow, and in, in um, you know there will always be some innovation at the infrastructure level. But fair will always require the active participation of the researcher forever. So long as we have computers, and so long as we have people, we will need uh, human beings at some point to codify their knowledge and their you know their practice at the metadata level, uh, in their, in their data sets, in their descriptions, um, so that the machine can better assist them And right now, you know, those, that encoding of, of human knowledge in a, in a machine representation is a bit tedious. I mean, to say the least it's, it's, you know, really clarifying terminologies and building, um, ontologies, uh, with some technical specification, making sure those are available. Um, coming to terms with the, the metadata schema and the different forms of metadata schemas that we would like to interoperate. So there's a, there's a lot of work that goes on there. Um, I suspect over time, technology can, can even assist and make it easier and easier and easier for just the ordinary, you know, practicing botanist to begin to record, uh, uh, fair metadata. You know, without a lot of hassle. 
So I think there's lots of room for kind of scaling or, or for, you know, automating or semi-automating these processes. Lots of room for, for innovation there. Um, Probably also for artificial intelligence, right? So I can I can clearly see some path how, how artificial intelligence could help humans to generate the metadata that they need to make their, you know, their scientific data machine actionable. Um, I, I fully agree. And, you know, in, in a lot of machine learning, you know, you might set some kind of objective function, right? You, you want the machine to do something optimized as, you know, for some task. So indeed, you know, you could ask machines to, to create metadata that are optimized even for, you know, interoperability with some domain, for example. Yeah, yeah. Um, and these could be pretty sophisticated tasks that you assign to the machine that, you know, would require, you know, different teams of people to try and implement. Right. Um, it could be that the machine can do that in a much more efficient way. Yeah, exactly. So there, there is a couple of concepts and, and words that I've heard while engaging with you guys and learning about the FAIR principles that I just briefly wanted to mention and talk about. So the, the first one is the concept of a data steward. So this kept coming up during the, the conference in, uh, in Leiden over and over again. Yeah. Can you just briefly tell us what, so what is a data steward? What is their role? And like, how many are there? Uh, are there here to stay? Is this an actual profession? So what is, what is a data steward? Yeah. Um, so uh, there is also this, this terminology, you know, a data management plan or a data manager. Then there's a, a data stewardship plan and a, a, a data steward. Um, I think if there is a distinction between these terms, it's really, you know, data stewardship is kind of maybe takes a broader view, kind of the, you know, the long-term longevity of, of your planning for, for this data to be viable. Um, so a data steward is a person who has some technical skill with data representation and, you know, you could say like data science or you know, data analysis. So they, they have some, you know, cyber skills, some computational skills, um, but their focus is not so much on, on the IT. Their focus is on, on the data, mm -hmm. which then incorporates the, um, uh, you know, the domain level content and kind of a knowledge of the practice that happens in that space. So the ideal data steward is someone who is maybe, you know, um, you know sort of trained as a, as a researcher in some domain, you know, in chemistry or biology, mm -hmm. and then later on gains some technical skills and then is able to really sit along with, say, the research scientists and to help them develop the experiments um, the methods, uh, making decisions about how the data will be captured and how it will be rendered machine actionable, et cetera. And this isn't, this is not only a, a technician role. Um, when it comes to the data modeling and to the semantics, you need someone who's actually um, really involved with the content of the, of the subject itself either from a methodological point of view or from really the, uh, the subject area. So that, you know, they have to be good scientists. They have to understand what it means to set up an observation or an experiment so that it yields a meaningful result. 
Um, they need to know that logic. They also need to know just the domain content, right? They need to know what, what genes are and proteins are and diseases are and how that works. So these are, these are you know, we envision that data stewards um, who are often viewed today as kind of technicians in the lab, you know, they're kind of cleaning up a mess, um, that, that they should really be elevated to uh, a professional role that is equivalent to the PI itself. And that research teams need to have both a a data steward role and kind of the the principal investigator role mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that they work together to then create uh, research assets that are maximally fair. Yeah. Okay, um, that makes perfect sense. So, do you think that there is? So, is this actually going to be a? A profession that that people can grow into and that you know th- that there will be job descriptions and like budgets available mm-hmm. and like widespread uh you know adoption of of this role across different institutions yep and i think that process has already begun mm-hmm. um so um more and more i can see across coming across email or linkedin uh job offers for data stewards And so you can even kind of, you know, see what people are asking for in these, in these roles. Um, uh, and I think people are being hired um, kind of at, at higher levels in the pay grade as well. So that's increasing. Um, uh, research departments are beginning to carve out, you know, in their budgets and, and in their institutions, um, uh, permanent positions for data stewards. So you see, I think all of the indications of of this emerging as a as a real professional occupation. Um, in GoFair, recently we've partnered with iOS Press, um, and uh, we're in the process now of launching what we call Fair Connect, and we think of this as a kind of a, a journal for practicing data stewards. And it's an attempt to really kind of professionalize, you know, give data stewards their professional platform to communicate. And the work that they do more and more will become citable and you know, even kind of verified in a way um, so that they can build up portfolios of their, of their data steward, um, um, you know, the, the things that they've done over time. And yeah, they can build up a professional profile of, of the work that they've done. That's really interesting. And uh, so another thing that uh, that I kept hearing about and that you also talked about at the conference was FAIR implementation profiles or yeah. FIPS, as you call them. Yeah. So what are those and what, what role do they play in all of this? Yeah, so a FAIR implementation profile is actually a really simple idea. Um, you know, when you look at it, these 15 one-liners, the FAIR principles, uh, so there's F1, F2, F3, et cetera. Um, you know, those principles are, <clears throat> are requesting a kind of behavior, uh, computational behavior that would enable the FAINR. Uh, to the degree that you've actually reached a level of fairness, we could ask a very explicit question, and I think you would be able to answer in a very rigorous way, you know, what is the technology that you used mm-hmm. to actually implement F1, mm-hmm. F2, 
F3. What okay, are the so this is about documenting your technological choices that you made, or just that's exactly choices it. in general. Well, it's really um, we limit it. We really focus it on on technology that is implementing these principles. And um, so the the fair implementation profile is really just a list of technologies. And uh, one thing we've discovered, kind of in hindsight, but I think is um, really fundamental to fair, is this notion of a community. So. Yeah, you can build a list of technologies that might implement FAIR, but um, who decided on that list? And on whose behalf does this list apply? So a complete FAIR implementation profile is a FAIR implementation community, and then a list of what we call FAIR enabling resources that that ping each of the FAIR principles. Um, So that's that's what it is. Abstractly, and the idea would be then that if a community, big or small, you know, temporary, permanent, whatever, but if if some group of people come together and create this list, they create a list of fair implementation choices. Um, now, a couple of things become possible. One is that you could make, for example, a data management plan or a data stewardship plan that anybody could follow but with your technology choices built in. So even a data steward who never heard about your FAIR implementation profile could implement in a way that is consistent with it. Right? So you can really kind of disseminate your choices to, to a community. Um, the other thing is that a, a FAIR implementation profile from one community can be head-to-head compared with a FAIR implementation pro- profile from another community. And so you can begin to see um, how the how the different communities have chosen to implement FAIR. And you can spot overlaps, which is nice. That's always nice. But you can also spot gaps or inconsistencies that might frustrate you know, interoperability or some kind of inter- interaction. Um, and then that's a starting point for revising your FAIR implementation profile Maybe what, you, what you've decided upon in the first instance could be optimized later on. And so, you know, this is another interesting moment of potential optimization uh, that could happen. And, and so um, the FAIR implementation profile, if, if done, you know, widespread for a large number of communities, would really paint a technology landscape of FAIR. This is, what, this is how people are implementing FAIR now. And it would give you a starting point for kind of an informed, logical step towards convergence on, on you know, more robust implementation strategies. Right. So in a way, uh, it's sort of like metadata about the metadata. It's, so we think of the FAIR implementation profile as a piece of metadata. And so we've actually gone to, to some effort to build a tool that allows people to build a fair implementation profile mm-hmm. that is itself machine actionable. So that's really cool. So this is something that, that researchers can actually use, right? So if, yeah. if I'm at a researcher, if, uh, if I want to go fair, make my data fair, how do I use that? Can I use that? Is it like, what's the level of effort required? 
Right. So, so the idea would be, you know, it, and, I'll, and I'll give you a concrete example again from the from the work we're doing with the Zone M Bay here in mm-hmm. the Netherlands, mm-hmm. this this funding agency. Um, the idea is they want to launch a new program in dementia research. So before that program is even announced, there could be um, an attempt to build a fair implementation profile, um, bringing in the right people. So bringing in the technology experts to consider the, um, the, the real technology components, bring in the domain experts in dementia to figure out the vocabularies that they want to use and the, the metadata schema that would be appropriate, the kinds of things that they want to record. So you really go through that exercise and you end up with a fair implementation profile that then at the announcement of this call where you say, hey, here's a, a, a new call on dementia research, people would apply and they would understand that if they should be receiving a grant, a project from this program, that they would have a a DMP template or a data stewardship plan template that they would have to follow this template and they would have to, you know, we would expect them to have produced fair research outputs at the end. And by following this template, which is informed by the fair implementation profile, uh, they can, yeah, they will be borrowing the right, or let's say the, the agreed upon vocabularies, the agreed upon metadata schema, uh, the agreed upon fair data points, so their work will now migrate um, directly into FAIR without having to have spent a lot of nervous energy trying to make these decisions themselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and everybody in that research program, you know, if there's 100 projects, they would be implementing FAIR in a consistent way according to you know, what the experts had said early on. Um, so for the researcher, the FIP, um, you know, I would say for most researchers, they don't have to worry about the FIP mm-hmm. unless they want to. Um, they might leave that burden to someone else, mm-hmm. a trusted authority, um, who will then say, okay, now in your, in your data creation efforts, um, you know, you will be using these metadata forms and these, these vocabularies. Right. Okay, cool. And so on this journey from zero fear to everything fear on a scale from zero to 100, mm-hmm. where do you think we are at the moment? Oh my goodness. Um, um, I think we are at a scale of 30 right now. Mm-hmm. Between that's 25 I mean, I've, yeah, I mean, that's, that's not nothing. It's it's obviously far from perfect. Lots of room for improvement, but it's not nothing. We're not starting not at zero. It's it's in, and I would say even in the last couple of weeks, you know, um, let's say since the fair focus week we had in Leiden, um, um, you know, EOSC just had their a big symposium in Prague uh, this week as well. I, I see so much brilliant progress being made. Um, I think there's still a need for coordination or you know, for some kind of focusing or convergence to happen. But I think the, the critical technology gaps have been spotted. Mm-hmm. I think there's clarity on, on what needs to be done, even though some of these projects might still be 
quite substantial. But um, yeah, I, I would say we're, we're not at zero. Um, there's a long way to go. I think the good news is that, or at least I'm optimistic that potentially closing the gap from, you know, 25% to a hundred percent, um, could happen exponentially if, if like, well, if, 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 um, if, 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 if. Yeah, 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 exactly. If yeah. there are these path dependencies, like tilting into the right direction, right? Exactly. We, we could wander <laughs> around for the, the next hundred years, you know, yeah. fishing for fair and never yeah. really achieving it. Um, or I would say even, you know, in the next decade, you could get, you know, very close to that asymptote. You know, yeah. Could really. So what, what would a future look like in which we've actually achieved fair, fair data, fair research data on a very, very broad scale? So mm-hmm. what is the end game? Yeah, you know, in, um, so at the Fair Focus Week, George Strawn presented a keynote, and this was a guy who, who handed off the, what was then called the, the NSF net, to AT&T and Verizon to become the internet, right? So George was, was here in Leiden and his, the way he sums this up is to say, you know, there will be a moment where we have, you know, what it'll look like to us as a user is that there's really just one computer out there running one giant data set. So this idea that you have to move between different platforms and different data sets and and different vocabularies and then find mappings between them and do the mm-hmm. data munging. Um, that will all be automated. Mm-hmm. And very much like the internet today, you know, Google basically presents the entire internet as a kind of directory right, mm-hmm. for you. Um, so it's as if there was one directory that, that was the internet, but that's an illusion created by the interoperability of the networks and, and what Google can present. But FAIR would be, I think, the um, uh, kind of the next step where even operations are, are automated to such a degree that um, what you see as a user is essentially one computer system, interoperable, one data set, and you can search on that data set as you see fit. So just to be clear, what, what you're suggesting is not that we will end up with one gigantic computer and just one data set. It's just that the user experience is going to feel like as if everything is so tightly integrated that it feels like it's just one gigantic computer and one gigantic data set and I can just browse around on it, right? It, indeed, that, that's a great point to make. That What George was not saying is that we're going to have one centralized computer. That's not the case. It'll all be massively distributed, but it will appear seamlessly as as a as a single um, experience. Um, you know, if I think about it a little bit more, like you know, what I really would love in my own day to day work is um, I use a Mac. I have a you know a way I can see the directory on my Mac, and I would love the moment when I can have a directory of files. Okay, fine, whatever file types. But I would love to be able to pull like bookmarks from the internet into that directory. I would love to treat web pages in the same way that I treat files in a directory. As well, for example, um, um, you know, services. I would love to pull services into my directory and just make it easy for me to organize things so I can get to them quickly and then operate with them. And at least on my Mac right now, the, the directory is designed for files. 
not for these other digital object entities. But if we had fair digital objects, then I could just manipulate um, these objects as, as if they were, you know, uh, objects. I could use them um, the way I would like to use them. Um, you know, and then there's more sophisticated visions of this. Um, uh, you know, earlier this week, we talked about data visiting. Um, and, it, you know, that's just the idea that, that rather than, uh, uh, you know, I say, hey, I would like to analyze, reanalyze some data. Could you copy it and send it to me, please? Um, rather, data visiting would be, oh, I, I have a query. I'm going to send it to a data station. The query will happen over there, and then I get the result back. And what's nice about this approach is that even very sensitive data um, can be analyzed under the appropriate conditions without having to be copied. And then copies sent all over the place where you never know what's going to happen with the data after that. Um, so there's, there's, I think, other advantages as well. But, but this data visiting approach is something that we can imagine with the fair principles behind it. And, you know, there's lots of nice innovations going on at different levels around data visiting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, so what was your personal story of getting into fair? So why did you start caring? I know that you have like a really interdisciplinary background. You're, you've played a lot of different roles in academia over time. So what happened at what point did you actually start realizing this is a thing and you you started to get involved and and uh, uh, become a player in this sure so uh, by training I am an evolutionary biologist and was interested in in some uh, um, some theoretical issues but uh, I found very interesting um, kind of model systems to work with ways to test theories using molecules in the laboratory. So RNA molecules, protein molecules. And so uh, after I received a PhD in kind of a, um, a bioinformatics and um, evolutionary approach, um, I did a postdoc at, at MIT in the laboratory and learned how to do biochemistry uh, in the lab. But over time, the interest that I had just became more and more data intensive. You know, and it wasn't just thinking, oh, I, I have a, a particular RNA sequence and I want to do an experiment. You can imagine, oh, I can imagine all possible RNA sequences. What does that mean? You know, how do you, how do you begin to think about that? And, you know, we can synthesize a lot in the laboratory using certain techniques. That's cool. Um, uh, I can keep track of it in a computer. That's cool. But, you know, just more and more, the, the mind was opening up to the space of, of a possible data that you can access in, in biology. Um, I ended up coming to the, to the Netherlands, working with Baron Mons at the Leiden University Medical Center, basically on data integration projects. And um, that involved, for example, text mining as well. And there were, um, you know, I could see immediately there's very interesting overlaps in data science or data intensive science, even though the the domain could be quite different, like text mining versus, you know, RNA biochemistry. Uh, but you could see very interesting overlaps. Um, but you can also see very um, frustrating uh, blocks and obstacles to doing data science. You were just wasting so much of your time in the data munging mode. And so uh, we 
we were working with some ideas around nano publications early, and then we had the meeting on on Fair in 2014. Two years later, there was the paper enunciating the Fair principles, and and then in that year, 2016, there was a project funded by um, I think it was Health Holland at the time, and it was uh, uh, Fair Dict. It was called like a verdict, but a Fair Dict, and. <laughs> And the idea was like, um, uh, you know, we could try to build some reference implementations for FAIR, you know, for the FAIR principles. Mm -hmm. And yeah, there's a kind of um, um, a a very broad spectrum kind of like community engagement. Like, what do people think about it? Do they understand it? How do we, how do we jumpstart this? So that was 2016. And then by 2018, um, the Go FAIR initiative was launched by German, French, and Dutch ministries. So it was a a three-way project. GoFair was meant to be a temporary kickstart on FAIR implementation, primarily for the purposes of the European Open Science Cloud. But but it had a global view. Um, And I would have to say that GoFair has been, I think, the best job I've ever had. It is... Uh, so interesting with the cross section of people that I've had opportunities to work with and talk to and, uh, you know, working with the community to develop things like the fair implementation profile or the metadata for machine workshop approach. It's really just been this incredibly productive moment. Um, we get a lot of traction. There's a lot of interest. And, um, so in a way go fair has been a kind of like a, a five-year sabbatical (laughs) outside the research domain, just kind of in this infrastructure domain. Um, And as it, as it turns out, um, it should be in the next couple months that I I actually re-enter research in the Leiden academic community. And um, we'll bring some, some of the bag of uh, the bag of tricks that we have from fair and, and try to do some more of this, um, molecular evolutionary biology that's really cool so you're you're going back to doing science not just meta but down to the ground (laughs) yeah absolutely and it's it's um um uh i think i'm very fortunate here because if you leave the research domain it's not always so easy to get back into exactly yeah yeah so it's it's, um it's it's a nice opportunity and uh it's yeah, it's where my heart really lies. Um, FAIR has been a, a kind of, um, like I say, a sabbatical. Very interesting. Uh, it's been a great job, but um, it's time to to go back into the research. That's so interesting. Okay, so I I want to wrap this up with a little lightning round. Yeah. Short questions, short answers. Are yeah. you ready for it? I'm I'm ready. Bring it on. First question: Geology or biology? Um, one and the same. They're one of the same. Why are they one of the same? They're um, in different buildings, different different people. Yeah. Well. Well. Um, um, so biological systems are, you know, isolated entities only in a completely artificial sense. You know, if, if you if you see an organism uh, or a cell, it's it's only uh, an, an entity because it's easy for us to study it that way. Um, all life forms are deeply interconnected with the geology of the planet and the atmosphere and the oceans. So, and I think this is where fair can really begin to shine because we need to interoperate 
between biological and geological and atmospheric and oceanic domains, um, you know, for to get a handle on um, um, current environmental predicaments. So, super. Okay, so that's super interesting. Second question: mobile or desktop? Desktop. <laughs> okay, I'm I'm with you there, Eric. I I know that a lot of people strongly disagree, but. <laughs> Um, <clears throat> Maybe we're just getting old. <laughs> I, I think that I think that's, uh, that could be an age-related thing for sure. Um, um, I would love to do my work at the desk, and then when I stand up and walk away, I don't want to do any work anymore. So yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's I maybe you. some assumptions I have there, but yeah, totally, totally. Yeah. Yeah, I, I remember. So when when I was uh, in a position that I was thinking about like getting my my first smartphone. I really had doubts whether that's the right thing to do. I, I was just very conscious of the fact that the moment I have this thing, that people can constantly ping me around the clock with yeah. work yeah. and I have no way of actually switching off anymore. So I delayed it for a couple of months and I was like, okay, I'm going to try this. And then, boom, of course, the inevitable happened. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and there's no turning back, right? It's, there's it's no really turning back, exactly. Yeah. That's totally a one-way street. Yeah. Okay, next one. Do you ask permission or do you beg for forgiveness? I'm constantly begging for forgiveness. <laughs> Another fellow sinner. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, it, um, uh, yeah, there, there's so many, you know, I call it low-hanging fruit or so many opportunities that you can act on even without a lot of funding or mandate. And so I, I, I give into that temptation probably too often. Um, and then uh, <laughs> we have to do the mea culpa after that. Yeah. Okay. Next one. Feeling or thinking? Both. A generalist. Yeah. Like, I guess it's the same as geology and biology. Um, uh, I, I guess I have a, a tendency to think that these, these dichotomies are somewhat artificial, you know, and they, they serve a, a certain purpose at a certain time, but um, we shouldn't um, um, really separate them at a conceptual level. Yeah. Okay. Next one. Please fill in the blank. Science is dot, dot, dot. Yeah. Humanity's sixth sense. That is deep. Please explain. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, you, you, um, you run a scientific project, right? So you, you formulate a hypothesis and you have observations and you do controlled experiments and then you get data and you uh, cancel out the noise and you account for all the problems and you might actually end up with a, a conclusion at the end. To me, that conclusion is an observation. It is a way of seeing the world. And in that way, the, this whole scientific process was just a way to see the world or to see a pattern in the world in a way that your eyeball can't do it or that your, your ears cannot do it. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I, I tend to see science as a kind of uh, another sense organ. That's wonderful. But it's a I, collective I love the metaphor. Organ, right? We have to do it I, with a group of people. I will definitely remember that. I will <laughs> definitely remember. That's such a powerful metaphor. Okay, last one. If you could change just one thing in the universe, what would it be? <clears throat> I would change all the zeros to ones and all the ones to zeros. 
<laughs> so you would create a mirror image of our universe. <laughs> um, yeah, I know. It's, I, I've had conversations with people before, um, um, you know, just given, uh, and this is this maybe um, then very philosophical or, or, or uh, yeah, it sounds even kind of like mystical, but um, somehow, you know, everything fits together in a way. And, and uh, there's lots of horrible things we can, we can see in the world and things we'd like to change, but somehow it all fits as, as one big picture. So that's why I say, you know, if I had to change anything, it would be just kind of coloring the bits, different colors or something. Um, but, um, you know, as a mission in fair anyways, what I could say is what would be nice to change is to see data stewards and this, this data stewardship role being elevated and because it's something that can happen all over the world and, and even quite effectively, actually, in developing countries. So I think there's this tremendous opportunity um, to to create, you know, a real profession of data stewards and um, and see people with wonderful opportunities in that realm. So that that's a wonderful end note. So. Eric, this has been a tremendous pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time. I learned so much from you. I'm deeply, deeply inspired. And I can't wait to keep talking with you about all these things in, in all different sorts of circumstances in the future. Absolutely. Thank you, Philip, for the opportunity. It's also been my great pleasure today. If you want to learn more about the history of the FAIR principles, the role of the GoFair Foundation and the concept of data visiting, we recommend you check out the recording of Eric's Future of Science seminar. You can find a link in the description. The seminars are a live format, so we've also linked the schedule of the upcoming sessions where you can actively participate in the conversation with other speakers like Juan Benet from Protocol Labs or James Boyd from the Wolfram Institute. So hopefully see you there.